Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us on what has become a rather busy Tuesday. Coming up on the program today, we are going to bring you the very latest when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks and other hockey players and the positive cases of COVID-19. We are expecting a live update at 1230 and we'll carry that for you right here on the program. We're also going to be getting an update from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, the health minister. That's happening at 1.30, also live on the program. Also seeing as well, the Prime Minister has convened an emergency call with the premiers of the provinces and territories in this country, and they are talking about travel. They're talking about the Omicron variant, and that's happening. So 3 o'clock our time, we're expecting that phone call to take place. So more details on that coming up throughout the afternoon. We're also going to be talking a little bit more about the snow in the forecast. It's been falling in many parts of the Lower Mainland, Fraser Valley, Metro Vancouver, some areas not getting any snow at all. Quite a different story, depending on where you are. And we are also talking about the $40 billion being set aside to compensate Indigenous children in this country. We're going to talk about that in the one o'clock hour of the program. First, though, we've talked about the St. Augustine School in the past and some of the concerns that school had with a BC housing project very close to the school. Well, today they filed a legal action. Nothing to do with that case. This legal action is against the Broadway subway project, the province of BC and the BC Transportation Financing Authority. The concerns have to do with safety as the construction of that SkyTrain station is underway. And joining me now to talk more about why they filed this legal action is Mike Zeptinche, who is the principal at St. Augustine School. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a little bit? This is a legal action that has been filed against the Broadway Subway Project, the province of BC, the BC Transportation Financing Authority. What is the issue here? The issue is uh, children's safety. Uh, That's always been our top top priority. And uh, after two years of engagement with the project team and other agencies, um, construction has begun and, and unfortunately measures are in place to make sure that the, the children remain safe around the, around the construction site here in Arbutus and Broadway. So this is the, the construction of the subway stop at that intersection. So what's happening there that is creating safety concerns for you and for some of the other parents and others there? Yeah, Jill, I don't know if everybody knows, but this isn't just a station here. This is the end-of-line station and a bus loop. So uh, construction looks a little bit different here than uh, the other five stations along the uh, the, uh, the line to this point. And uh, we are located 25 meters away from from the construction site. So that's 450 kids um, so close to to the construction site. So we've seen increased traffic congestion. We've seen unsafe uh, movement of construction vehicles and um, we just we we're afraid that it's uh, an accident waiting to happen. And when you talk about the the consultation, uh, I would imagine that that you knew that this station was going to be the end station on the line at least for now, even though there is some talk of extending it. But did, was there not consultation in what the actual construction would look like for this particular station? No, in, in fact, you know, um, we only found out uh, about. The location of this particular stop um, when it went public in September 2019. 
we, we sort of had general knowledge of the line up to that point, but we, we did not know that this was going to be the, the location of the station, and we had no idea it was going to be an end-of-line station and a bus loop 25 meters from our school. And what kind of response did you have, or, or did you reach out to the parties uh, to try and get some clarification or some answers before taking legal action? Yes, we've been engaged with uh, the project team, the province, TransLink, and all other agencies for the last two years, trying to be as constructive as possible, solutions-oriented as possible, to, to come up with mitigations that, that are low-cost, sensible, and just would ensure the safety of, of these children uh, under our care. Um, and unfortunately, regrettably, we've, you know, we, we've been frustrated. There's been very little um, solutions presented. And construction has started, and we're seeing that uh, there are already impacts. And, you know, this is a five-year project. It's going to be construction is going to go on for five years. And uh, construction risks and impacts are just um, growing exponentially. If we don't do anything right now, um, yeah, it is an accident waiting to happen. That's why we've, uh, we're hoping the courts can help us here. Uh, I notice in the uh, the petition, it states uh, that there have been tra- traffic safety incidents that have been reported at this point. Uh, things such as students that go to St. Augustine uh, using unmarked crosswalks without crossing guards and the, that the traffic has or the, um, the construction has made it more dangerous. Is that something you think that can be fixed as far as if we bring in safety measures or do you want the project to stop altogether? Oh, no, we don't want the project to stop. Uh, we're, we're in full support of accessible rapid transit along the Broadway corridor. Uh, I'm a transit user myself. I have a compass pass myself. Um, we just want it to be done properly and, and safely. What we're, what we're proposing um, is immediate uh, implementation of traffic calming measures, Jill. Very sensible, low-cost measures. Um, Raise crosswalks, speed bumps, traffic lights, some street diversions noise and visual barriers and we'd like to see an authorized traffic management plan which has not been presented to us uh, yet so um yeah we just we just want all those measures in place so that the kids remain safe and an accident does not happen right one of the the other um calls or the the things the mitigation measures called for is to eliminate all construction vehicle traffic on Arbutus whenever there's pickup or drop off, drop off times for students. So 8.25 to 8.50 in the morning, 2.50 to 3.15 in the afternoon. Uh, do you think that would be possible in that, or, or how big of a, a job would that be as far as to have the construction vehicles vacate at those times? I, I think it is entirely possible. In fact, you know, we've had reassurances that that would be the case. Unfortunately, um, that has not been the case. We've had a couple of incidents where we we have seen construction vehicles during those times. We, we just feel that these are all basic safety measures that should already have been done. And I think people would agree that looking at uh, when we're talking about such a major project near a school, that uh, there needs uh, to be safety measures in place. I am curious, are you concerned at all with the fact that St. Augustine School has been in the news before, uh, previously and recently, uh, with some opposition to a housing development nearby? Are you concerned that people are going to get the impression that the school uh, and parents at the school don't want anything to change in that neighborhood? I, I hope not. You know, BC housing is a concern. We have some concerns around that, but that's not today's topic. And uh, 
I think that whether we're um, an independent school, private school, public school, you have 450 kids. Uh, safety is is paramount. That 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 should be our priority. I wanted to ask you one other issue that was brought up in this petition is the fact that this is the end station, at least for now, until further notice. And there's concerns brought up saying that children will be exposed to high levels of diesel exhaust fumes from the Broadway B-Line buses running every couple of minutes from Arbutus to UBC. What are you calling for there? Because even if the line is continued out to UBC, that's not going to happen right away. What would you like to see there to mitigate those safety concerns? Well, first of all, we, you, you know, the uh, Trans- TransLink and Project Team have conducted uh, diesel emissions and noise uh, surveys, or, or they've collected data around that, but they have not uh, give it, done an analysis on the health impacts of those uh, diesel emissions and noise on vulnerable, um, vulnerable on a vulnerable population. You know, kids three to twelve years old. Um, what we would like is a commitment that you know, we they could run electric buses in and around the loop. Uh, that would eliminate any concerns around diesel emissions, but we have had not, we have not had that commitment from from the project or TransLink. So do you know at this point if they are going to be mostly diesel buses, or has that? do you know even if that decision has been made? We've been told that the, um, the fleet may comprise hybrid buses at that time, five years from now, but uh, no firm commitment to that. What do you do now then as uh, this legal action has been filed and uh, I guess that uh, so the time for for conversations uh, isn't happening now that legal action is going ahead. What's next then for your school? Well, we're trying to mitigate all the traffic and safety impacts uh, as best we can. Um, We have parent volunteers manning the crosswalks helping to alleviate any congestion at our peak times, you know, um, pick up and drop off during the rush hour. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to continue to to engage the project team and other agencies to uh, see if we can help mitigate uh, for the safety of the, of the 450 kids 25 meters from, from this construction site. All right. Uh, Mike Zaptinche, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, as you just heard, still some flurries coming down in parts of Metro Vancouver. And depending on where you woke up today, it looked a lot different in different neighborhoods. Let's bring on meteorologist Armel Castellon. He is with Environment Canada. Armel, thank you so much for being with us again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Jill. Uh, so very different as far as snow falling accumulations. Some places still seeing the snowfall. What are we dealing with? Yeah, we're dealing with a band of snow, you know, a, a very convective in nature, so very intense uh, precipitation rates. And what's so impressive about that is that it's quite localized. So, you know, parts of the lower mainland of Metro Vancouver, we're not seeing this. We're seeing kind of a rain, cold rain, obviously. But in some locations like White Rock, we saw the temperature plummet from 4.5 degrees right down to one degree uh, in a very short time. And of course, that's the lowering of the freezing levels with that cold evaporation that's happening as the intense flurries hit and some places yeah two to five centimeters even upwards of uh, 15 centimeters um, on the westwood plateau so yeah definitely uh, localized but very problematic uh, for this uh, kind of early early to midday 
Yeah. So what causes such differences? And even here we were comparing, I took a little video out of our window in downtown Vancouver and it was blue sky. Uh, Ben Dooley, who produces this program, took a video at the same time in Surrey and it was like a blizzard outside of his window. So what causes it to be so extreme? Well, we, you know, it's not a big scale uh, event in the sense that we're kind of dealing with this little low kind of cruising by and it doesn't need to be the biggest, the deepest, the, the windiest storm in order to create some localized effects. And that's is essentially what we're looking at here, something that's kind of restrained to, you know, several tens of kilometers, but not the entire Fraser Valley and Lower Mainland and half of Vancouver Island, right? It's a much smaller scale than that. Uh, and that convective nature, because of this cold air, mostly higher up, uh, is is able to kind of create those uh, convective pulses. And this one just lined up kind of a north-south band, you know, from kind of West Vancouver, Port Coquitlam, down towards White Rock and Surrey, and everybody in between, of course, including uh, Burnaby Mountain. Um, So places at elevation obviously saw the most, but even right down to essentially sea level, we're we're able to get some accumulations, uh, if, if only temporarily. And as just was just reported, and, I, and I'm sure you've been watching, there is still some snow falling in some areas. Any idea how long that's going to continue? That's right. And yeah, if you look at the radar right now, you can see that kind of, uh, you know, downtown Vancouver, West Vancouver and part of North Vancouver are certainly affected. Um, there's likely a chance kind of throughout the day, this particular pulse is obviously going to wane as it kind of hits into the mountains. Uh, but we are uh, in that same pattern. So it's not impossible that in the next, uh, you know, several sets of hours um, that we, are, we could see another two to four centimeters tonight, for instance. Hmm. And the same areas or what particular can you kind of give us the the boundaries of where we're expecting that? Um, Yeah, I would say that the well, essentially the Fraser Valley and Vancouver, the sea to sky um, are essentially the, the, the most likely scenario to see again another kind of pulse developing Uh, right now. It's not in the field of view, if you will, for the radar. So it would be coming up maybe from the the San Juan Islands uh, or Bellingham, that direction. Um, And as that happens, you know, it will become clearer on the on the radar signature and the the satellite. Um, And so we we currently have our special weather statements out right now. Um, It could we could release it and say, you know, we're, 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 we're confident that there's only a smaller chance of seeing a two to four centimeters uh, in, and localized, right? Again, it's not going to be every single location across the, uh, the south coast, but certainly there's that potential is still there. All right. And here we are. It's December 14th. Is this a normal type of weather system to be seeing this time of year? Absolutely. You know, yeah, this is not kind of a mid-November or a a mid-October storm that kind of catches everybody by surprise. I think by by December, uh, we should be aware, and it's not the first time that we'll have seen snow at this time of year. Uh, And in fact, we have snow again, you know, several times throughout the uh, the forecast period here. So uh, we should look at kind of the intensity of the, the rain slash snow on 
late on Wednesday into Thursday and again late on Friday into Saturday. That one might come with a little bit more warmth, but it's certainly not without the possibility of seeing snow. Uh, you know, the Sea to Sky Whistler uh, could be hit harder in that in that instance. Uh, so it's kind of a day-by-day forecasting challenge at this point because, as we know, on the, in the lower mainland, snow is always that very fickle line between you know, cold rain and, of course, snow and accumulations and, uh, and therefore some of the problems. Right. And that's uh, you just touched on something I know that is often the problem when we see things warm up a bit during the day and then freeze again, causing pretty treacherous conditions on a lot of the roads. Is that something we need to be concerned about right now as well? Well, yeah, you could never be overprepared. I think that's the the fair message at this point in the in the season, you know, shifting into winter, having uh you know, you're, if you're going to be taking the the road to the roads, you know, to have all that equipment with you, including winter tires, but also having a look at Drive BC to look at what the conditions are, uh, the forecast, of course, the the alerts if we have ones out, um, and 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 maybe postponing if uh, if absolutely uh, you you have that opportunity and and making those smart decisions because you're you're putting yourself in danger potentially, uh, your the people in your vehicle and those the pedestrians and the other vehicles. So I think it's a, it's a, a really good time to consider, um, you know, the, the complexity of a forecast and the implications it has on, on society around. Definitely. And I'm, I'm sure you're getting this question already. I'm not going to ask you because I'm guessing it's too early, but are people asking you already <laughs> if it's going to be a white Christmas? Of course they are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing question, particularly for the south coast of BC, because it's not... White Horse. It's not Edmonton or Winnipeg where we our, our chances are you know below fifty percent historically speaking. Um, I will say that the pattern does look favorable at this point. Just generally, we are in a fairly cool pattern. It's not over the top, but um, you know the the conditions are not looking to be warming up significantly, um, and and even deeper into December. So you know there's a uh, a general statement that can be made there, and then certainly it'll it will have to wait till you know probably a little bit closer to to the twenty fifth before we can start to say uh, a white Christmas and even a perfect Christmas, which is when there's snow on the ground and flakes falling on the same day. <laughs> I guess it's a it's a perfect Christmas depending on what you have to do that day. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, I guess too. also looking at it, I was thinking it was farther away, but we are only 10 days out to Christmas Eve. So I know a lot of people, yeah, wondering what is it going to look like? Well, yeah. And that's it. I mean, it's a great interjection here for what forecasting can do. You know, sometimes we can talk about the winter ahead at a seasonal scale. And then we are in a La Nina uh, winter. It's, it's a moderate kind of weak La Nina, but it is still there. So, you know, the deck is essentially stacked for these lower elevation snow events on the south coast, uh, just ever so slightly more than a regular winter. And even on a regular winter, we would see this a a few times a winter. So, you know, there's that level of of anticipation for mostly late December, January, February, even March and early April for just a cooler trend. Uh, But then the the challenge remains for the details in the shorter term. And yeah, no no self-respecting meteorologist will start talking about the 25th in in any kind of categorical way at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And we wouldn't expect you to, but we're, we're happy that you can just let us know what to expect for the next couple of days. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the next couple of days are going to be that kind of cooler trend. You know, normally we're at like five degree highs, zero degree lows for kind of the valley. Um, Vancouver is similar, kind of six and one, just a degree higher. And, and we're going to be hovering around that. So the overnight temperatures will certainly dip close to zero, if not below. And so there's some treacherous conditions out there, even if it's just the sidewalks and people on their bikes and bike lanes and, and, uh, yeah, we have that pulse on Wednesday into Thursday, and then again that late Friday one. So it's it's definitely an active period here. So we want to stay in tune with the forecast on a kind of day-by-day moment. And in fact, here in the next 12 hours, we could see that two to four centimeters. So certainly to be aware of that. All right. Armel, as usual, thank you so much for bringing us all of this information. So appreciate your time and for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Have yourself a nice afternoon. Just a reminder, in about 10 minutes, we are expecting to get today's COVID-19 update. That is with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. And it's expected there will be more questions about rapid tests. As you likely know, we don't really have access to rapid tests in BC, but other provinces, Alberta, Quebec, other places are making rapid tests available to residents of those provinces. Even earlier today, Christian Freeland, the The finance minister and deputy prime minister tweeted out that two of her staff were isolating after taking the rapid antigen tests. And so if the deputy prime minister is using the rapid tests, it does kind of lead people to ask, well, why wouldn't those tests be more widely available for people if they work, if they catch asymptomatic cases and if they help keep those people that may even not know that they're infected, keep them out of those group settings. That is happening this afternoon. We're going to bring that to you live right here on the program. And I mentioned earlier as well, we got word uh, that uh, this afternoon, 3 o'clock our time, and that is 6 p.m. Eastern, that the Prime Minister and the Premiers of the provinces and territories are holding a phone call, a bit of an emergency phone call, and they're going to be talking about Omicron, and they are going to be uh, talking about travel restrictions, potentially. So we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that they're going to be talking about that and we're hoping to get an update from that call a bit later on in the program. So that is happening and you will likely get more details on that on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. So stay tuned for that. On a much different note... We are again talking about parking. In the final hour of the program today, we are talking to Mario Canseco. He's a pollster with Research Co. And he just did a poll. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to this. It has to do with parking on the street. And no big surprise... No big surprise at all. People don't want to pay for parking on the street if you can't find a spot in front of your home. Not a huge surprise there. What you might be surprised about, though, is the reasons why and the number of people who responded to this survey. I'll just give it to you right now. We're going to talk about it later on and open up the phone lines. But seven in 10 drivers say it is very difficult to find a parking spot in their municipality when they need one. That's a pretty high percentage. And then he breaks it down as well into... Here's a big one, and I know this is always a contentious issue. People that have a garage spot but don't use it to park their vehicle. Uh, A majority of drivers in Metro Vancouver, a slight majority, 51%, say they have a garage and they do park their vehicles. 
That means 49% don't. 22% rely on a shared parkade, not 49. Uh, Just one in 10 say they have a garage and don't park their vehicles inside it. My guess is that number might be a bit skewed, though, because a lot of people don't want to admit doing that. Uh, 16% of men, 15% of those, sorry, 16% of men say they have a garage, but they don't park their vehicle inside it. They instead park their vehicle on the street. Uh, Over the past two years, 27% of drivers in Metro Vancouver acknowledge having received a parking ticket. And we're going to talk about that a bit later on in the program. Uh, Let's check in right now, though, with our next guest. And uh, Virgil Awasis is a former family empowerment worker with the Tawasan First Nation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, My apologies. We only have a few moments to talk right now, but would love to talk with you uh, much more at length about this. Uh, Talking about the $40 billion that has been set aside, expecting more details on this today in the financial update. Uh, What are your thoughts on this payment to compensate Indigenous children who were harmed while in foster care? Uh, The very first thing that I would say is that it's a long time coming. Um, but my other thoughts on it, right, like I just worry about like, you know, like what this means for, for families that are going to be receiving this money. The only reason why I say that, right, is in my experience when working with people, if families, you know, they're experiencing a lot of trauma, right, it's that feeling on the inside, right, and, and the historical system that Canada put in place for Indigenous children was wrong. To, to begin with, but the legacy of that is what I'm talking about, right? Like, right. Um, right when people have a lot of trauma, right, they, they tend to use substances and whatnot, right? And so, in my years of advocacy, right, I've, I've seen it, right? People get money and then they get taken advantage of by other Canadian citizens. Um, so, what I would advocate for in this short conversation is just a healing center, right, for Indigenous people. You know, like when doing our work down at Tawasa, right? One of the stories they came through was that Canada took 5% of the land. They took out all of the longhouses here at Tawasa First Nations and made way for the Ferry Causeway. And those kinds of stories aren't isolated, right? And so when we're looking at, you know, compensation and whatnot, right, there's, there's no amount of compensation that can bring back relationships, right? If I could, you know, just digress a little bit. In my family, we had, um, I had my grandparents who I never met, right? Canada knocked on my late grandmother, Caroline Thunderchild's door, and they took all 14 of her, her kids. They put them into foster care, residential school, and adoption. Those kids became three families. And then the way that played through to my life, right, mm-hmm. is I never got to meet my mom, right? And so, you know, and you go through all the historical trauma, right, that that brought on for my life, right? To have to survive all of that and to have somebody say, okay, well, my here's a piece of paper. I don't know if it speaks to the experience. Right. No, and I, and I get what you're saying. And, and you're right. Sometimes we do tend to focus on the numbers and the number of people that would qualify for, for the compensation. And again, Virgil, my apologies. We only have about a minute left. Yeah. What would you like to see then in addition to this? I know that a lawsuit has to be settled, but what would you like to see then in addition to help out? Well, I'd like to see less kids being taken into the system, right? D.C. has 5% population of Indigenous people. Canada, I think we hover around 4%. You know, that Indigenous, Aboriginal, also includes Métis and non-status, right? 
But right now, our population is 50% being put into the social sector, right? So social MCFD, right? That number has to be worked on to, to promote more preventative service versus, you know, this, this incarceration type of system that penalizes our people for, for being here and, and always being here on the lab. All right, Virgil, and again, my apologies. We had a bit of a a scheduling issue, but we will invite you to come back on the program. But thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you.